What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ladies and hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. The star namesake, Victor Davis Hanson, is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor's official home on the World Wide Web is victorhanson.com, and we're going to talk about that a little later and why you should be subscribing to that. We've got, as we always do, a lot of topics. I hope we can get to most of them, Victor. I think the first one worth talking about this morning, I'm sure our listeners want to hear your views on this, is Kevin McCarthy, will he be come Speaker of the House, and what your thoughts are on the small Republican contingent who seem to be fighting him, not seem to be, they are fighting him. So let's get your thoughts about that, and we'll talk about Jimmy Lai, Chinese dissident, and other things right after these important messages. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, They've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor. Kevin McCarthy, who you know well, I know he represents the district adjacent to you. So, I mean, you actually know him, know him somewhat well. Um, speaker presumptive, but maybe not. Uh, there, there are five Republican congressmen. Here are the names. Ralph Norman of South Carolina, Matt Getz of Florida, Andy Biggs of Arizona, 
Bob Good of Virginia, and Matt Rosendale of Montana. By the way, there may be another one in the wings. I don't know, but it's my understanding. There are five congressmen who are saying they do not want Kevin McCarthy to be the Speaker of the House. That seems to be close to uh, the um, – such a close uh, – the numbers between Democrats and Republicans are so tight that that could be the margin of victory. I've, I've seen Mark Levin go after these this cabal as bunch of losers or weirdos or whatever he's 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 gone whole hog after them and maybe rightly so victor what are you what are your thoughts about this little contingent that that want to um you know kneecap kevin mccarthy well i mean there's a couple of things kevin mccarthy's not mitch mcconnell for number one i mean the, the criticism is not so much that he's a rhino but that he doesn't have the skills necessary to be an effective speaker but he's only going to have five or six votes from, you know, on any legislation. And so what these five are doing is they're holding the entire Republican Party hostage. And they're saying, we're not going to vote for him uh, unless you move to the right in your committee selections and the type of uh, procedures and legislation you introduce. OK, we understand that. But if you think about it, it's kind of nihilist because. Who, who's their candidate? I, I don't see any other candidate. They know there's no other candidate. So if they vote against him, who are they going to get? Are they going to get Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic person? Uh, people have talked about Liz Cheney being Speaker of the House. So what's what's their end game? is what I'm trying to get at, because I don't see there's an end game there. I can see they're pressuring him, and that's a legitimate political tactic, but Ultimately, who 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 else is there? Matt Gaetz? You think he's going to get a sufficient amount of votes? No, none of them are going to get votes. Nobody they want is going to get votes. Nobody they want to get votes is going to stand up as an opponent. So it's entirely, I don't know what you would call it, performance art, showboating, virtue signaling. I don't know what it is, but it's a distraction to the extent that it reminds McCarthy that he's got a large conservative uh, minority in within the Republican House membership that wants him to stick to MAGA principles it might be valuable. But at some point, they got to get down to business. This is a distraction. By the way, Victor, I'm springing this on you because I didn't send a link, but I just saw a piece. Gosh, I don't know. Maybe Byron York wrote it. Yeah, anyway, it's about ear. But well, no, it wasn't. It was, somebody, it was about earmarks, so. though. There was yeah, a vote they're, in they're the back. caucus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I if you don't mind, uh, here's Springer. I've always felt that earmarks are are this, okay, they're small, right? It's this million dollars for this br- traffic corner here in this town, et cetera. Um, br- just bringing back home the money that was sent there. But to me, it, uh, you know, the million bucks is a bribe for for much greater onus on on taxpayers and future generations. I, I personally, people don't care about my views. Uh, I, I strongly oppose earmarks. What are your thoughts about, about that? Earmarks are like nuclear proliferation, that once somebody starts to do it, then the other candidate who was against them or his principal says, you know what, I'm going to be primaried or in two years I'm in the general election, somebody's going to say, that I didn't bring home the bacon to my district. So therefore, even though I don't support them, I'm going to get some type of earmark or federal slush fund money. That's that's what it is. It's that's how that's the whole logic. 
And it's designed to, let's face it, it's designed to get incumbents, which are about 90% of all house races, the incumbent wins. It's designed to perpetuate the incumbency of the house. And they got rid of it at one time and then they brought it back. They're starting to bring it back and it's a mistake. There's something wrong with this whole class. I mean, what kind of system is there in the house that allows somebody like Nancy Pelosi to become a multi, multi, hundred, two hundred millionaire person when she has no outside income, supposedly, other than her real estate husband, whose whole career is predicated on being one step ahead of the of the pack when it comes to where federal allotments and federal funding and federal acquisitions and real estate deals involving involving the federal government are there, or when there's legislation pending. Uh, before Pelosi, and nobody knows what it is except her husband, and then he reacts accordingly with his investment portfolio. So the whole thing is corrupt, and it always, you know, it always has been. Being corrupt doesn't mean it's not effective. But I'm what I'm getting at is, at some point when you owe thirty-one trillion dollars in debt, and you're talking about spending more and more and more, and all of these people are clueless about it. And all of a sudden, you know, the interest rates up to 6% and you're servicing this debt of $31 trillion. You know what's down the pipeline. They're not paying any attention to it. It's either we're going to have to make massive cuts in Social Security, massive cuts in Medicare, massive cuts in the defense budget, or you're going to have to I guess, even though the going rate of interest is 7%, you're going to have to only offer 2 or 3% on T-bills. Nobody's going to buy them, or you're going to default on them. That's about the three alternatives, and nobody talks about this. The fourth alternative, something like the old Simpson Bowles, gradual reduction in spending, simplification of regulation in the tax code, and in 10 years getting to a balanced budget, that was considered conservative because while it did have a pathway that had we adopted it when Obama inaugurated the commission, remember he was bragging in 2009 and 10, he, these people were going to get us to a balanced budget. They came back with it and he just renounced it, his own commission. But had we got there, it still didn't, it still did not address the debt. We're still carrying this huge debt. And I guess the idea about the debt is we're paying it. We're going to, service at inflated dollars. I don't, I don't know what's going on, but something's de- terribly wrong with the Congress right now and, and the executive. And that's why people are really getting cynical. Well, Victor, there are heroes in the world, principal people. One of them is uh, Jimmy Lai. And Jimmy, if I'm, if I may, for hopefully just half a minute, uh, I've met Jimmy a few times because he's the godson of Bill McGurn, my dear friend, Bill's a columnist at the Wall Street Journal. He used to be the Washington Bureau Chief at National Review, where we first you know, worked together 30 years ago. Jimmy was a hero in Hong Kong. By the way, he's still a hero. He, uh, an entrepreneur who started a retail, big retail chain, and then started the Apple Daily, a uh, terrific freedom-loving paper that was sticking it regularly to the communist regime. Uh, you know, the dynamics, we could, we could have a whole show on on Hong Kong and should this turnover from the, the British re- re- returning uh, its colony to China. By the way, there were lands outside of Hong Kong that 
uh, England had a 99-year lease on and had, you know, 99 years it was coming, had to return this to the Chinese government. But Hong Kong, it did not have to return, but it did. Hong Kong was had fifty year a fifty year pledge to be treated as a you know a place of free enterprise etc. Uh, all those promises made in a treaty by the communist government, of course, slowly one by one have been uh, denied and forgotten and abused. That led to protests from a few years ago. Remember the big millions of people in the streets of Hong Kong before uh, you know COVID affected everything in the world. Jimmy Lai was at the middle of it. Jimmy Lai's a billionaire. He could have run away. He didn't. He stuck it out with the people in the streets. He was arrested for uh, violating the national security laws. And he will face uh, his trial begins next week. I think he's one of the two great heroes right now of there are many heroes in China who've stood up to the regime. I know you and Sammy have talked about what's going on in China lately, but uh, Jimmy and, of course, Cardinal Zen, the Catholic leader of a uh, 90-year-old Catholic leader who was charged and convicted with some petty crimes also. Uh, but they're not. But they're, they're standing tall for freedom. These are people who believe in freedom, free press, free enterprise, et cetera. Their real voices are in Chinese jails. It's remarkable. Anyway, Victor, I don't know that you've ever. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of thinking you probably have not met Jimmy. No, I, I never met him. I just remember that he was sentenced 14 months in jail back in 21, and I think these sentences keep piling up on him. Yeah, and you know, when Britain made that deal, nobody believed the communist government was going to allow two systems and a vibrant free market and not just state free market, but a vibrant free market with constitutional government. Nobody believed they were going to do that. In fact, I would ask our listeners, can any of you think of one agreement that the uh, communists, whether it's in North Korea or Eastern Europe or the Soviet Union or the communist Chinese, one agreement that, they, that they've that they ever honored? I can't think yeah. of one. The Hitler-Stalin pact, Victor. That's one that, that Joe Stalin honored. Well, I mean, I pointed that out in the Second World Wars. That right. Joseph Stalin made an agreement with every one of the six belligerents, every one of the other five belligerents. Uh, Japan, they had a non-aggression pact of April 1941, and they adhered to it until the last two weeks of the war. They had one with the Nazis. They adhered to it, and by extension with the Italians. And they never, they never honored one agreement with the allies that saved them, Britain and the United States. So that was what the great irony of Stalin was. He kept his word with all the, the evil people, and he treacherously turned around and stabbed in the back the people of the allied world that had sent him 20, 25% of his wherewithal in the war. So you, that's how you just look at this thing. Anybody who's hard left has an ideology that says our noble, superior, moral, ethical ends justify any means necessary to achieve them. People don't count. Your word doesn't count. Honor doesn't count. It's just equity. That's what's so frightening about these people. And even not just communists, but the gradations of the left leading up to communism, whether that's Marxism, socialism, progressivism, or hard left democraticism. And you can really see that with this this bankrupt Bankman-Fried family, all of them. You know, we've just announced in the news that 
Now we, we realize that they didn't have the parents. They didn't have just one apartment. They had $16 million in real estate. Did they pay gift tax on that? Did they pay income tax to get that kind of money? I don't know. But the father's a law professor where I work, and he's a quote-unquote tax lawyer, a tax equity lawyer trying to refashion the tax code in his scholarship to make sure that it shows equity. Is that very, does that show much equity trying to buy $16 million in luxury real estate property in the Bahamas with somebody else's money? Victor, surely the Stanford faculty Senate is going to take him up (laughs) on charges, won't they? Nope. Not (laughs) one chance because again, they're all, I did Fox and Friends this morning, um, and Pete has Hegus Hegseth, whom I very like. I know you know much better than I do. He was discussing this new college fix report that uh, six universities have no Republicans uh, in their in um, their departments. Thirty departments, not one. But what's interesting about the the poll was there were University of Alaska, University of Oklahoma, Ohio State, University of Nebraska. They weren't Harvard, Stanford, Yale. And the point was that the wokeism has permeated even so-called conservative schools. And as I pointed out today, the problem isn't that there's not one Republican. The problem is that the 99% Democrats in these in these particular departments and 93% are no longer Democrats. They're so, and there was a, an associated poll when faculty were asked, what is your political ideology dash outlook? Is it democratic, socialist, Marxist, communist? 75% of that faculty said they were Marxist or communist or socialist. And they're woke and woke doesn't just mean that they're hardcore progressive it means they're activistly they're activist progressive they want to change the nature of the united states radically so and i don't know how many of those jack are sort of like during the french revolution or during the bolshevik revolution or the revolutions of 1848 where they just say you know I got to go teach my English lit class or my German introductory German class. So I'm just going to act woke. And that's my indemnity insurance. So that if they ever come after me, if somebody ever accuses me anything, they're going to say, well, he's one of the good guys. He's woke. Let him go. That's This is a long, windy explanation of the faculty senate at Stanford. And so those professors took out insurance, woke insurance. So they know that whatever skullduggery they were engaged in, they're not coming up before the Stanford Faculty Senate because it's an ideologically bankrupt institution. And they do know that if you're Scott Atlas or you're Neil Ferguson or myself, and you didn't take out woke insurance, then they're going to go after you for nothing. Whereas they have this big elephant in the room that their so-called tax lawyer and their so-called utilitarian ethics lawyer, law professor, what did they do? They engaged in perhaps one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in U.S. history. Engaged in the sense that, A, money was transferred by an employee of their son's cryptocurrency consortium into his mother's uh, mind the gap, uh, dark money packed that funnels Silicon Valley money with very little publicity into the hard left candidacies in the midterms, and more importantly, 
they had their name on the deeds of $16 million in real estate. So that's, that's, these are just the minor little means necessary to get to the moral and ethical ends. They would say. Victor, uh, I just want our listeners to know uh, two things. Uh, You mentioned the college uh, fix. That's what you were talking about today. It's a great website. Uh, John Miller, uh, my my colleague, former colleague at at, uh, National Review, and John runs the Dow Journalism program at Hillsdale College. He's done that for about 20 years. Just John's one of the best men I've ever met in my life. Good, good man. College Fix is a great website. I encourage our listeners to check it out. And also to circle back on Jimmy Lai, I would like to uh, recommend also that the Acton Institute, which Father uh, you know Robert Sirico founded uh, um, over, uh, I think, 25 years ago, uh, w- w- which is uh, an effort to uh, defend free markets, uh, is long been associated with with Jimmy because prior to Jimmy Lai becoming a, a figure of leading the protests in Hong Kong, he was also a, a global advocate for freedom and free markets, um, a great advocate of Hayek and Milton Friedman. Um, they have produced a documentary called The Hong Konger. It's about Jimmy Lai. So I recommend go to thehongkonger.com. It's website. Go to Acton Institute. And I and I believe folks will be inspired by uh, uh, by this uh, uh, great man who's again enduring uh, trials in uh, communist China right now. He's a great threat to the regime. Victor, uh, we've got a lot of other things to talk about on today's show, and one of them is this three part series you've written for uh, your website, VictorHanson.com, uh, Left Wing Hysteria and the Art of the Psychodrama. And let's talk about that right after these important messages. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I encourage our listeners, I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, we're going to talk about victorhanson.com. 
And I want to uh, recommend you visit it and you will try to click on this article. It's one of these three articles called Left Wing Hysteria and the Art of, of the Psychodrama. And guess what? You won't be able to read it unless you're a subscriber. It's $5 to test it out, $50 for the year, discounted. And Victor writes a significant amount of exclusive material they call Ultra, Ultra Articles, for his website, victorhanson.com, S-O-N. Um, I think there's a, the equivalent of, a, of two books a year worth of, of original content. So uh, please please check that out. You'll also find links to uh, his, the books, every book that Victor has written, which is probably about 15 or 20. How many books have you written, Victor? Uh, I think it you counts. It. I had a couple of e-books. I don't know if those will count. If I count those, it's probably around 28, if not traditionally published Damn. books, about 26. <laughs> I think That's two. To quote were, George Bush. Yeah, yeah. two or three. I've read twenty six. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, that's right. Raymond, Raymond Abraham and. Uh, uh, well, I co-authored Bush. one with John Heath, and, and when right. I say I co-authored, I really I benefited from his excellence and expertise. Who killed Homer? And then uh, the three of us co-edited something called Bonfire of the Humanities, a collection of essays. And then I co-edited or I co-authored with Heather McDonald and other another scholar uh, about immigra- illegal immigration, the immigration fix. It was a long, those were just essays that were compounded together by the Manhattan Institute. Well, that's VictorHanson.com. So uh, and quickly on me, uh, Jack Fowler, the uh, I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic, and I write the free weekly email newsletter, Civil Thoughts provides a dozen plus recommended readings of articles of worth that I've come across in the previous week. Here's the link. Here's an excerpt. It's not transactional. It's just recommended reading that I think intelligent people will will like to see. And it's, it's gotten great uh, feedback. There's no risk, no no charge. So if you'd like to um, read it, get it, subscribe. Uh, go to civil thoughts, civilthoughts.com, sign up. And uh, again, that's a, a function of the Center for Civil Society. And we are damn intentional on trying to strengthen civil society in America, which is, which is, it needs it desperately. So, Victor, in your three part series, Left Wing Hysteria and the Art of the Psychodrama, I'd like you to talk about it. But here's uh, maybe you can focus on in, in the second part you write about, which close to home to me from, from New York City in the Bronx, you go after. Uh, Al Sharpton, who's really an archetype for a lot of things in in this country. Uh, here's what you wrote: in in, in some sense, in some sense, such psychodramas all followed from the 1987 35 year old successful archetype of the teenage Tawana Brawley, supposedly kidnapped for four days, defiled with excrement and graffiti on her naked body, sexually assaulted by four evil white men. Among them, as the insane narrative descended into absurdity. Uh, purportedly assistant district attorney Stephen Pagonis, that evil fantasy eventually propelled the tax-avoiding, anti-Semitic, homophobic, and racist Reverend Al Sharpton to earn the current-day lucre as a MSNBC cable TV habitue, however, I never knew how to say habitue, and and former nonstop visitor to and advisor of the Obama White House. Victor, that was... That was some sort of perverted um, 
Lewis Carroll kind of. No, it was. I mean, it was what was interesting about Tawana Brawley was you could not fabricate a more impossible, unlikely, illogical narrative than she concocted that she was kidnapped by these white men that she that and they put excrement and they scrawled over and they raped her. But she had no descriptions of them and the types of injuries she was um, describing were not backed by any forensic evidence. And then as the psychodrama occurred and kept, you know, escalating instead of apologizing and downsizing it to, well, maybe I was raped. They started to get crazy. It was like the Salem witch trials. And they, this assistant district attorney, Steve Pagonis, hadn't done anything. The only good thing about it was he sued for libel and won. But as of now, I think she's only paid 1%. She didn't ever, she never paid him the 150, probably up to 500,000 now, but she never paid him. And Al Sharpton, never really apologized. In fact, in, at one point, right during the middle of the Obama administration, this is very relevant to our listeners because we're coming off a week when Donald Trump stupidly had dinner, whether it was an ambush or not, doesn't matter, with this Fuentes character and Kenya West. And I don't know if Milo was there either, but the point I'm making is that Fuentes, Nick Fuentes is an abject anti-Semite. And people roundly criticize Donald Trump, even though he's not an anti-Semite, because we know that he's the most pro-Israeli president in the history of the country. And his son-in-law is Jewish and was a principal advisor. His daughter is a Jewish convert. His grandchildren are Jewish. But nevertheless, that was a legitimate criticism of him not to have dinner with a person who's a Two of them that are uh, have said things that you could interpret as admirable about um, they admired Adolf Hitler. Okay, go back to Obama. And Al Sharpton would not apologize during the Obama administration. He said, I have nothing to apologize for. Nothing. I didn't know she was lying, meaning. I don't care whether she was lying or not. I was going to use that to propel my career from a rotund former road manager for singers and a phony preacher into a nationalized national Martin Luther King figure, he thought. And he almost pulled it off because he smoothed and kissed up to Barack Obama. So here's what I'm getting at. So Barack Obama, one of the most frequent visitors to the White House, not one dinner, was a person who was abjectly anti-Semite. He said, dim Jews, tell them Jews in a yarmulke to come over here. Remember Freddie's Market and the pe- people that died and the Jewish person who was killed? He was deliberately inciting violence against Jewish people. He said that uh, he said the Greeks were homos. He lied about Egypt, that these were African-Americans and the Greeks were all homos. Any any impossible, crazy thing he embraced, he didn't apologize. And yet he was the most frequent visitor to the White House under Barack Obama, who never disowned him because he thought that Al Sharpton, 
had street cred and would galvanize not 70 percent, 80 percent, but 96 percent of the black vote. So Mm -hmm. in swing states in the Philadelphia precincts, he would get 30,000 votes in a precinct to zero. And he did. And that's not the end of it. He also posed in 2005 with who? Louis Farrakhan, the most anti-Semitic, pro-Hitlerian figure in American public life. And the only reason we didn't know that during that election of 2008 is because they suppress the f- photographer willingly suppressed that photo at the request of the Black Caucus n- during the campaign, during the election, and during the subsequent eight years of the Obama. Reign. We're talking about uh, Ob- uh, Obama with a uh, picture of Obama. Yes, with a smiling Barack Obama embracing a smiling Louis Farrakhan. Okay. And so nobody in the media said anything. So when I look at this reaction to Fuentes, and I, I'm happy that conservatives condemn that, but I don't believe this outrage uh, by the media because they've never shown it before when Obama just embraced two of the most known anti-Semites in the United States. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to be generalizing, but it's very hard to find a major uh, marginalized people leader on the left that has not been anti-Semitic, and the left should remember that. Let's go down the list. We've got Al Sharpton, check. We've got Louis Farrakhan, check. Remember Jack- Jesse Jackson, what he said when he got to New yep. York? Yeah. Jaime Town. Jaime Town, right. Check. And then we have the squad and all of the Benjamins and Ilian Omar, check. And Linda Saussure, check. You can go all the way down. And so, by the way, and- Victor, I, I checked Joe, but I mean, somebody who wants to empower Iran, which wants to destroy Israel, I have a feeling that's kind of oh, absolutely uh, gal- galactic. Uh, I mean, uh, let's there is a small fringe that is reappearing on the right under Fuentes and these white supremacists. They're very small, but anti Semitism is mainstreamed in the Democratic Party, and they know it because they feel. Remember 2013? It wasn't just the knockout game. It was knock out the Jew. That was the street game in New York. Right. And they said that. And mm-hmm. those those awful YouTube of Orthodox Jews and Hasidic Jews just being flattened. And that still is going on. And if you look at hate crimes today, young African-Americans commit twice the hate crimes of their demographic. And if you use males between 12 and 40, the, the percentage goes way up. Because twice uh, overrepresented by a magnitude of two is all African Americans. And if you look at Jews at two to three percent of the population, they make up about a half of the hate crimes. So there it is. And that's all coming from the left. And so, yes, everybody should condemn Donald Trump. That was stupid. And when you add or compare with his other stupid statements about Glenn Youngkin with a Chinese name and and making fun of uh, Mitch McConnell's wife. He doesn't have the discipline uh, that is necessary for him to be an effective candidate at this point. And he's going to have to change and become much more disciplined. He's going to have to fire a lot of these staffers. Anybody who doesn't know what Kanye West is doing or Nick Quintus is doing is it shouldn't be in the political, the political business at all. And yet, 
they're apparently intimates of Donald Trump and they can't even shield him from these crazy people. But what I'm getting at is that Tawana Brawley thing started it all because of what was important about it. They, when confronted with the evidence that it was false and that she made up everything and that associates of her had told people that she made it up and no one believed her. And Al Sharpton then said later he didn't care whether it was true or false. He believed her because it could have been true. That set the stage. And right after that, we we had a whole succession. We had the Duke lacrosse psychodrama. We had Covington kids psychodrama. We had another Duke volleyball psychodrama. And then yeah, we had this... Huh? Yeah, we had the psychodramas of all psychodramas. We had the Juicy Smollett psychodrama. And then I think there's been, according to statistics, over 200 rope incidents. Remember the NASCAR rope where we had one at Stanford University where ropes start appearing or the N-word starts appearing. And the great majority of these, these are concocted psychodramas. And why did they all start occurring? Because that Tawana Brawley established a principle that if something is alleged and is proven to be a hoax, it doesn't matter under the Foucauldian relativism on the left. They say, well, in this particular case, the rope was planted. Okay, you prove that. In this particular case, the student did write the N-word on his own dorm door. In this particular case, no one heard the N-word at a volleyball. In this particular case, no one raped this stripper who performed for the lacrosse team. In this particular case, you can't defy the laws of chemistry by throwing bleach in subarctic temperatures and having it not freeze in case of Juicy Smollett. But as Al Sharpton showed us, it's possible it could have happened. And right. if it could have happened, it would have happened and it will happen. And therefore, this concocted psychodrama was a teachable moment. It was valuable because it brought our attention to it. And there's nobody has ever been punished for these things. She was convicted in a civil suit, but she never paid. And Al Sharpton never paid for years. He was he was convicted. I think he paid his $65,000 when people raise money. And by the way, he's talking about Donald Trump's tax returns. The Obama <laughs> DOJ and the Obama IRS finally right. went to him and they gave him a sweetheart deal to get out of all of the tax money he'd robbed the taxpayers. So it's it's these psychodramas, and I was writing about them. There's, there's a lot of them. And it was an entree to a larger phenomenon on the left. And that is, I think everybody should remember that they have an agenda that no one wants. No one wants socialism. And that's what the progressive Democratic Party is is promoting now. They do not want an open border of 3 million people coming across without an audit. They don't want this destruction of fossil fuel industry. They do not want these Soros DAs and these high crime cities. They do not want six to 8% annual inflation. They do not want the transgender craziness. They do not want something like Afghanistan. Okay. So if they don't want that, how do you retain power? You have to have psychodramas. And 
We've had a lot of them, the 2008 meltdown. Terrible. But that thing, if you go back to the origins of it, that was, as we know now, a product of Fannie and Freddie meltdowns. That is federal loan guarantees for subprime mortgages given under pressure from the left to loan money in a wildly speculative real estate market to people who did not qualify because of historical injustice. So they would get a mortgage and the government would back it. And then we started to have defaults. And then we had another psychodrama. And one of the psychodramas is uh, that we see right now was Suddenly, we had Russian collusion. That is, Donald Trump won the election in 2016. So collusion, collusion, collusion excuses everything. We can go forge FISA documents if we have to. We can ambush Michael Flynn. Mm -hmm. We can become election denialists. We can be Rosa Brooke and write articles and say that there might have to be a military coup. We can do all of that. And, and 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 even if it didn't happen, it could have happened. It could have the, happened. That's right. the point. And the same thing is true about COVID. That's a psychodrama. And the psychodrama was, okay, this is not a, a terrible flu. This is not dysentery. This is not typhoid. This is a teachable moment. So if you're Hillary Clinton, she said, under the guise of COVID, we could get single-payer health care. If you're Gavin Newsom, under the guise of COVID, you could have a, quote, more progressive capitalism. If you're Klaus Schwab, you can write a book called The Great Reset and COVID-19. Or you can be Anthony Fauci and recommend that all rental agreements should be suspended for an indefinite period. You don't have to pay your rent to your landlord. Who knows how he's going to collect it and survive or make improvements on the house. And that was a, you know, in my hometown, if you were selling flowers in a mom and pop store, good luck. You're shut down. If you go to Walmart, you can get all the flowers you want. And that, that was a, a moment where the left really got a lot of power. And more importantly, they change voting laws in a way that will never go back. It's now not 30% mail-in early 70 election day. It's 70 early voting, 70% mail-in voting. And they manipulated that system under the guise of the COVID crisis. And then, of course, you had January 6th. And we know, you know, a guy with cow horns and paint, and a bunch of buffoons that go in and trash the Capitol should all be punished. But the idea that they were armed insurrectionists, not true. There was nobody inside the Capitol with a firearm. The idea they had ties that were going to kidnap people. No, that was from the security police that was left there, the Capitol Police. No, Ashley Babbitt did not attack anybody. She was unarmed and shot entering a window, probably a serious misdemeanor or minor felony. And yes, the officer's identity was hidden. And yes, according to Mr. Rosenberg at the New York Times, there were plenty of FBI. He's a very left-wing journalist. So he got caught on an Operation Veritas ambush interview. And he said there was many, many, many informants, none of which Christopher Ray under oath would tell us anything about. And yes, Officer Sicknick was not killed violently by a Trump MAGA person. And yes, the House under the Pelosi leadership did not release communications between her office and the security police. And yes, following the January 6th 
psychodrama. They militarized the capital, and we hadn't seen that since Jubal early approached it during the 1864 raid on Washington. 30,000 troops, Bob wire, and all of a sudden, insurrection, dem- democracy dies if you don't vote for Biden. And so that's how they operate. Every time there's a natural or a concocted disaster, it becomes a chance to aggrand- of aggrandizement of power, and you don't talk about the message you don't talk about. Did anybody in this election ever talk about on the left? This border policy is in everybody's interest. Inflation is a good thing. It spreads the wealth around. We don't want to have cheap fossil fuels. We want to go back to the Stephen Chu, $8 a gallon European level gasoline, and we're on our way to it. And Afghanistan was a really good thing, and we're proud of it. They don't do that. Right. Instead, they say, these people are insurrectionists. They say uh, every person in America is going to die in a back alley that wants an abortion. It's death against women. And then there's the positive. I mean, the different type of psychodramas. And I had a whole section on these typologies. And that is right before the election, there's always the October surprise. Right. And that can be what? Amnesty for marijuana convictions. It can be amnesty for student loans. It can be draining the strategic petroleum reserve. And we, in our infamous folly, say nobody's going to fall for that. And they do. It can Mm -hmm. be Roe versus Wade, demagoguing that. And then there's the November surprise after the election. Who would have known, Jack, that after the election, the left was going to appoint a special counsel to investigate Donald Trump. Who would have known after the election the FBI would leak that there were not nuclear secrets and codes at Mar-a-Lago? Who would have known that? No one would have known that. Yeah, Joe that's, Biden didn't know. They didn't know that at the White House. <laughs> no. So that's how they gained power, and it's a playbook yeah. that – the Maoists did in 47, 48. It's what the Bolsheviks right. did in 1917. It's what the Robespierre brothers did in 1792, 93. Because nobody be- wants that agenda. You Before we go on to our last topic, you mentioned uh, Foucauldian relativism. Did I get that right? And what is Michel Foucault, yeah. And he was very influential Prince. Philosopher mostly came to prominence in the 1980s with Lacan and Derrida, and they were the rage of something called postmodernism or poststructuralism. He wrote a seminal quote unquote work on the penal system that uh, it was the law was constructed and and did not reflect human nature in the sense that a crime can't be defined as a crime against civilization or against human nature, but it's a construct that the wealthy do. It's a father. Everybody says, you know, it's Herbert Marcuse, but it's actually, I think, not just the Frankfurt School, but the French postmodernists that really accelerated this wokeism in the 80s. I was teaching as a visiting professor Stanford's classics department, 1991 and 92, and the behavioral sciences in 92 and 93. And you could really see it. But that was during the Bellow, Saul Bellow, Bennett, 
Right. Book of Virtues. Uh, yes. Uh, the, it was that fight, that culture war that everybody was right. engaged in in the 90s. Jesse Jackson went to Stanford. Hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. That right. was the first world war of wokeism. And then there was wow. a pause. That's a great. And great then we had the World path. War II. And wokeism, yeah. we thought we had beaten wokeism back. No, wokeism had made substantial gains, then called an armistice. Uh, during the Reagan and H- George H.W. Bush years. And then, of course, it came back after George Floyd and renewed fury. But the first uh, assault was the importation of French postmodernists. So all of a sudden, you started to see in every field in the university, who was to say that, who was to say that's the truth? Right. My truth, I have a truth. And my truth is just as important as your truth. Your truth is the truth of status quo, orthodox American society. But it's really not. It's really the truth of your white, male, Christian, heterosexual, racist, uh, racist, (laughs) biased. And I'm not going to accept your truth. There was even things like, you know. Postmodern architecture. Who's to say that a, a right angle is more stable than a slant thirty degree or a forty five degree angle? Who is to say in two plus two equals right. four? Right. It's and they don't. There, there was no natural truth, and so that was the basis that in this therapeutic society that we see today, that people say these ridiculous things. Well, I'm just my truth. It's my truth. No, there's no such thing as my truth or your truth. There's a truth. It could be your interpretation of the truth, but that doesn't make it true. And that was what happened. I saw it. You know, you, you're that that that's what's behind this whole transgendered idea that a person can construct an identity that has no connection with reality or nature. Right. Right. I can when you look at Foucauldianism and you what Michel Foucault did. You can it's a it's a natural trajectory to a biological man who says, I am transitioning and now I am a woman and you have to accept me as a woman. And I even have tampons. And you know what? There's going to have to be a tampon dispensary in male bathrooms. Right. And everybody says, well, then would you please explain to me how a man with testicles and a penis with no ovaries, no womb menstruates? And they can't. And so that, but you're, that's what you're, it is. But by asking the question, you're, it shows that you, your problem in that you yes, asked. I'm a classical empiricist. I think I'm a classical empiricist, but I'm not. I'm not really an inductive, disinterested thinker. When I just said that, mm-hmm. that reveals my heterosexual, white, male, imperialist, colonialist prejudices that's how and that's you can see what it is it's nihilism and look how it's permeated the entire society so as we speak if you're going to apply to harvard or yale or you're not going to have an act or sat because that's a framework of assessment that was constructed by fill in the blanks white male privilege wealthy has nothing to do with actual knowledge who's to say that that knowledge should be privileged over this knowledge. Who's to say that there's such a thing as grammar or syntax? Why do you say you can't say, hey, ain't folks, instead of people and do not, does not? 
So there is no such as thing as grammar. There's no such thing as syntax. And history is the same thing. Right. You know, and then we we saw it during 9-11. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Right. And so there is no standards. There's no absolutes. It's relativism. It goes all the way back 2,500 years back to the sophist. It's no different than Gorgias and all the rest of the sophist. And uh, Well, Victor, I like that premise of the First World War of Woke and the Second World War. That is a really interesting way to frame things, and yeah, I hope we'll uh, expand on that in, uh, in future writings. Each uh, time we fight it and we think we've won, they have made advances and they're ready for the next hot right. war. And then we have yeah. a cold war. And they've almost won now. They control all the universities. They control the corporations. They control Wall Street. And I'm not just exaggerating or spouting off. I'm trying to be empirical. They control Walt, you know, Walt Disney's company. They control American Airlines, Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola. Just look yeah. what they're, they say. They control the NBA. I thought they didn't control Major League Baseball or the National Hockey, hockey, uh, hockey League. And NHL, that tweet too. And they taken, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, they took uh, over that. And that, yeah. that was a very funny tweet because he was saying that the NHL is too white, which it is, not too white, but it's white because it's, you know, northern uh, United States and Canada, and it's a cultural thing among people in very cold climates, and there's fewer blacks that grew, grow up and play hockey. But the corollary was never mentioned. Right. He was saying that it was implicitly racism, that it wasn't proportionally representative or even repertory representative. And I thought to myself, okay, then the NBA is 74% NFL, 75% African-American. So what remedy are you going to do to make the NHL look more like America because whatever you come up with, we can use for the NBA. We mm -hmm. can use for the NFL. And then it's and it's going to be against merit. So if this is how sick this society is, Jack. If you say what that idiot said the other day, that he was going to bring in more people who didn't look like white males into the NHL. He was basically saying we're not going to use meritocratic standards. Because if you did use meritocratic standards and you wanted to have more black hockey players, then you'd start in kindergarten and you'd have first grade, second grade, third grade. It's a very viable way. It would take about 20 years, but you could do it. Just like you could have, you could tell every little white kid, you're going to play basketball, 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 not hockey, not soccer, basketball. And you could probably increase the white proportion of NBA players, but they don't do that. They just say instantly, right now, we're going to bring in black hockey players, and the quality will decline if you don't do well, that. And the same yeah, thing if you said where are the white Chinese hockey players, though. I mean, yeah, where does this end? Exactly. <laughs> if you said right now, the NBA is going to be 70% white, 13% black, 10% Latino, 8% Asian, the quality of play would decline because there's a natural winnowing out process. Just like just like that today's NBA would beat the NBA of 1948 or 50 when it was exclusionary of blacks. The, the level of play is much higher because it's totally meritocratic. It's not based on race.
Right. And that's, but it's never symmetrical. It's never symmetrical. Well, Victor, we have uh, time for, and we're going to have to extend the time because this is a good topic, but we're going to talk about a piece you you wrote, uh, your essay, recent essay for American Greatness on Captain Quig, and we will get to that right after this final important message. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. We're recording on Saturday, December 3rd, and this podcast is being aired on justthenews.com and other platforms on December 6th, the feast day of St. Nicholas. Victor, you wrote a really intriguing um, essay comparing Donald Trump to Captain Quig, who's the main character of uh, the Kane Mutiny. And if I just let me set this up. Um, quickly, you've made other uh, fictional comparisons to Donald Trump that I think have been, you know, pretty important. Give a pretty important perspective. Uh, Shane from, of course, the movie Shane, and then uh, Ethan Edwards, who was the John Wayne's character in The Searchers. And here now, you've talked about um, uh, Trump as Captain Quig, who, for folks who have seen the movie The Kane, The Kane Mutiny is the, the captain of the ship who's very troubled, who uh, who faces uh, an insurrection, and uh, it, 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 there's a there's a naval uh, trial, and Quig is kind of broken by this whole process in the end. And I first reading your piece, I'm thinking, this is not, uh, you know, Victor, what are you doing here? This ain't the greatest comparison. I mean, uh, there's culpability, whatever you call it, contributory negligence on Quig's behalf for his own fate. But then you you make the point as you continue reading your, I think, exceptional piece. You're writing about the book, The Kane Mutiny, which is quite different than the movie. The movie is a terrific movie. I don't think anyone can question it. But that was the it, best. Is, that was the best uh, role that Jose Ferrer ever had. It was brilliant as Barney Greenfield. Below. Yeah, he was. He was even though he won an Oscar for yeah, uh, he did. for uh, uh, Cyrano a couple of years earlier. But so Victor, uh, yeah, I, I I went out and bought the book. I haven't started reading it yet. But uh, for those of us, and I assume most people who are listening, have probably seen the Kane Mutiny. Uh, would you dispel us of, of of what prejudices we might have about Captain Quig, who's really differently portrayed in the in the book, and how that compares to Donald Trump? 
Well, I've, to, try, to make sense of the Trump phenomenon, I've tried to use different at various times reference. One was Sophocles tragedy. And we have seven uh, surviving plays of the playwright Sophocles. Everybody knows the Oedipus Rex, but there's a, also the Antigone. Probably people know almost as much, but there's other great plays like the Philoctetes and Ajax. And it's all about an old style Athenian or Greek that no longer has a place in a modern democratic society, but they have certain admirable absolutes of loyalty, persistence, heroism. But when they pursue those to the nth degree, they cause chaos. And so they're only good for particular moments. And that is also reflected in the genre of the Western. We've talked about this before, but the Magnificent Seven, High Noon, Shane, the Searchers, Man Who Shot Liberty Bell, they all, especially the John Fords, but also George Stevens' Shane, they pick up that theme that when there is a paralysis in a community and the democratic ethos doesn't produce the old tile style individualist go my own way disruptor, they bring him in from the outside. In the case of Shane, the cattle barons. In the case of the Magnificent Seven, Eli Wallach and the banditos. In the case of Manor Shot Liberty Valance, Lee Marvin and these cutthroat cattle barons again. In the case of High Noon, these murderous uh, four people are going to come back and kill townspeople or kill the sheriff or Grace Kelly, etc. And so then you get this particular person and he handles the problem, usually through violence. But the method that he handles the problem is antithetical to the civilizational pretenses of the community. So when he starts to solve the problem, the community says, ha, ah, at least we're safe now. And that was summed up in that great line at the end of uh, the Magnificent Seven when the old man, he's talking to Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen. He says, you are like the wind. You blow in, the locusts are gone, then you blow out. And if they if they had more time, they would thank you. And 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 he says, Yeah, well, they'll be glad to see us go too. And the point is, we're done now, and we are antithetical to a stable, peaceful, ordered society. And they take off, just like Shane takes off, just like Ethan Edwards walks through the door at the end of the searchers, just like Gary Cooper throws down his badge, doesn't want anything to do, and goes off in the buckboard, just like Antigone dies, just like Ajax commits suicide. So I was trying to, and that, I think that that explains a lot of uh, the Trump phenomenon. But there was another reference, and everybody remembers the movie, The Kane Mutiny. And in that movie, which reflects part of the book, there's these kind of young educated officers and there's this old Navy Humphrey Bogart Quig and the guy is an erotic and he's paranoid and he has to count, you know, strawberries and ice cream, all this stuff. Okay. And they get kind of a cabal and so they make fun of him. He does things that are kind of dangerous. He's not talented. I'm not saying he's Donald Trump in that aspect. Trump had actual achievement, but in the movie, the theme is had they, 
during the trial, had they not conspired to magnify or to increase his paranoia, but to lessen it and say, you know, Captain Quig, we're here to help you. Or when he did something crazy, like, you know, pull out too soon during a drill and not get close enough to shore with his destroyer, they said, Captain Quig, that was pretty good, but they didn't do any of that. Instead, they conducted a mutiny and Jose Ferrar exposes it. But in the book, it's even more dramatic because the Fred McMurray character who has humiliated the trial, he gets a uh, assignment similar to Quiggs and he's even worse. He can't do it. And his point is that, okay, you're a novelist and you're a writer and you're in the same position, but for all that education, you're worse than Quig. And the other, the young guy, I think was Herman Wook. I had the the fortune, he was in a club that I was in and he died, I think at 103. This was about 2016. He was probably about a hundred. And I walked up and gave a talk to this group and he was there and I talked to him or maybe it was earlier 2015 about the novel. And I was suggesting that maybe the young person in the movie, who's the Princeton graduate was him because he served on a minesweeper and I think a destroyer escort in World War II. And he went through a lot of combat mission. I mean, uh, you know, landings while in the Navy. And he sort of, I think his answer was more that it was a composite character. But the whole theme, to, to finish this analogy, the whole theme is that Donald Trump may have been reckless, he may have been crude, but if you had not, when he came on the scene, if you had not ambushed Michael Flynn, there was no reason for the. There was no such thing as a real Logan Act. It was an ossified concept, and yet they framed him. There was no Russian collusion. There was none, none, none. If you hadn't taken $40 million and unleashed Andrew Weissman and Robert Mueller for 22 months and just lied in CNN and MSNBC day after day after day about bombshells and walls are closing in, if you hadn't done all of these other lies about he was uh, inappropriately feeding fish or uh, in Trump Tower, his computer was pinging it in connection with a Russian bank or Michael Cohen, his fixer, was in the Czech Republic. He was in Eastern Europe uh, fixing collusion deals by the whole time Hillary was doing, of course, through Tony Dolan and Tashinko, et cetera. If you hadn't done that, or if you hadn't just said, okay, he kind of was a little out of hand on that call, but basically he was, he was saying that if the Ukraine wants offensive weapons that Obama didn't give them, and I will give them, I want to make sure they're not transferring money to the Biden family. Just, just guarantee you're not doing that so I know that it's transparent. He did it in a crude fashion. If he hadn't, But that was no reason to impeach him. I could go on. But what I'm getting is they acted in the same way that the officers around Quig acted. In other words, they played on his paranoia, his neuroses. They attacked him at every single instance. They gave him no room, no, no benefit of the doubt. And then when this was happening, unlike Quig, but the, their reaction was a similar, he had almost ended with with no help at all. Right. 
the, his own administrators and the cabinetcies against him, he rebuilt 500 miles of rickety wall and was ready to start new walls and would have closed off. He almost closed off as it was illegal immigration. He got right before COVID, he got 2% growth with 2% inflation and 3% unemployment. For the first time in U.S. history, we were energy independent. The Abrams Accord was brilliant. I mean, Barack Obama got a a Nobel Prize for nothing. But wow, Trump had Saudi Arabia ready to go and Kuwait and Somalia, all the Jordan and Egypt, they were all poised to recognize Israel and end the state of affairs in opposition to Hamas and Hezbollah and Syria and Iran. That was a brilliant thing. He got no credit at all. Yeah, said they only have him peace twice. in the Middle East and for the yeah, for years. And, yeah. and you can say that he was reckless on January. You could say that Donald Trump, they're out there protesting and you're still denying the election. There's a cause and effect. You're, you're pre- you shouldn't do that. But he said, if you're going to assemble peacefully, he didn't call for violence. His people didn't attack uh, and kill anybody. You know, the five people died. One died naturally. Uh, that wasn't a protester. The other four died, uh, maybe one through violence and one we know through violence. So it, they had to even lie about that. And so my point is that what if when he, Donald Trump was inaugurated and the left said, okay, what if they treated him like the right does Joe Biden? That is, they made fun of him. They oppose him. They attack him in op-ed, the legitimate political. But no one said, like Rosa Brooks did in an influential essay in foreign policy, no one said, we got to get rid of this guy after 11 days. We have to impeach him. If that doesn't work, we got to get the 25th Amendment. If that doesn't work, we have to have a military coup. Right. And maybe oh, what if Obama, uh, Madonna didn't say, "Let's"? I, I dream of blowing up the White House. Or they didn't have this kill chic where they try to Snoop Dogg and this Kathy Griffith and the right. Shakespearean the head. Right. Yeah. troop and their Central Park, cut off his head, burn him, blow him up. What if they didn't have all that? Just normal political opposition. And what if they didn't file impeachment from the first 60 days they were going to 35 people in the House wanted to impeach him? What if they didn't do that? I, I don't I think he would have he wouldn't have been as neurotic. And that's what Herman Wook was trying to say about Captain Quigg. It was kind of a shock in the movie, but he's building up to it, uh, I think, less dramatically, but more holistically in the novel that. You get more hints of it that when this mutiny is going on and they're forming it and they're keeping diaries and they're tutoring themselves in pop psychology and Jose Ferrara will really nail them. Are you a psychologist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? What he, what he, what they're saying is you are deliberately neglecting your role as an officer in the U.S. Navy to support your captain, no matter how flawed he is. And whatever he was, he was not criminally minded. He he could have been right. functional because he was functional through the whole war and the old Navy and, and the peacetime when nobody wanted to join the Navy. So it was a good model, I think, for parts of the Trump experience. And yeah. yet they, they didn't do it. Instead, what happened? Rod Rosenstein 
and Andrew McCabe wore a wire and they were trying to entrap the president as some kind of uh, 25th Amendment nut. The Senate brought in Bandy Lee, a Yale psychologist, to say that he should have a straitjacket and be carried off Mad Hatter-like. Instead, they they had this crazy Logan Act with Obama holdovers. Instead, we we heard that Donald Trump was crazy to the extent that he was forced to take the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, which he aced, not one wrong. And you know what? Where's the principle? Where's the principle that this, if that was the precedent, where's the principle that would apply to Joe Biden? Are we going to impeach him for what's on Hunter's laptop or not enforcing the border? Will he please take the Monterey Cognitive Assessment? Are we going to sabotage his appointments and see if we can set perjury traps with the FBI? Is is Mr. Ray going to have a private meeting with Joe Biden and then record it on FBI material and then leak it to the Los Angeles, to the New York Times while he's assuring Joe Biden that he's not under investigation? Is that what we're going to do? So that's what they did. And they destroyed the Trump administration. They didn't need to do that. They could have opposed him. And then when the election came, why not just have a regular election? Why not just have election like we've had for the last 232 years? Why did they radically change the voting laws? Why did Mark Zuckerberg have to give $419 million, as outlined in Molly Ball's Time essay, to warp the turnout in key pre-selected precincts? Why did they have to modulate the Antifa and BLM protest, according to her essay, to wax uh, during the Trump years and then to wane right before the election when Joe Biden would probably, they thought, be elected and after his election to cease them entirely. So that that's what I was trying to point out. Yeah. And yeah, it's easy to say that Trump now is, you know, he's he's doing things that are Trumpian. He has Kane West and Fuentes and he's saying to Mr. You know, he's making fun of Mr. Yunkin and he's making fun of all people, Ron DeSantis. But Part of that neuroses and paranoia was the actual behavior. And by what I'm not excusing Trump, but what I'm saying is if you applied all of that to Joe Biden, not just making fun of Joe Biden's dementia, but in concrete, real ways, if you had somebody right now said, I am anonymous and I am a and lied and said, I am a high official in the Biden administration. And in this New York Times op-ed, I pledge to you people that Joe Biden is dangerous. He's non compos mentis. And my role will be to subvert and overturn every one of his executive actions. I will try to undermine him for the good of him. What would happen? I think they'd hunt him down and find him in one minute and arrest him. Right. He'd be vilified on the uh, MSNBC and CNN, whereas if the shoe was on the other foot, he'd 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 be getting a contract from those yeah. places. And so that that's what I I tried to do in that piece. Yeah. I think a lot of people misunderstood it in, in two ways. They said, "Well, Trump was successful, and Captain Quig was an 
incompetent, but that was not the peril I was trying to emphasize. Right. And I pointed that difference you, out. You you made the difference, Victor. Yeah, yeah no, that's yeah. why I, I I would have been one of those people who you could say that about if I if I had only read the headline as opposed to reading the the entire yeah. essay, which is available at American Greatness, and where you write uh, twice a week. And it's also on, on your website, victorhanson.com. So terrific piece, uh, folks, and especially if you're a fan of the movie. I was looking up while while you were talking. I thought maybe, maybe T's Turner Classic Movies might be showing this in the next few weeks by chance, but it's it's not. They usually show it like three or four times a year. I, I hard, hardly, yeah, it's hardly great, recommend it. It's one of the best uh, courtroom dramas because we, you don't really think that's going to happen when they when – Quig is destroyed by Jose Ferrer, who's just ruthless and points out his weaknesses and the poor man collapses. And then for the first time, you really, well, there had been hints earlier, but for the first time, you're very sympathetic to him. Right. And when they have that celebratory festivity afterwards, you you don't really think he's going to come in here and say he was ashamed of what he had to do to Quig and then just trash all of them. Yeah, that was a very powerful scene. Uh, yeah, it's and, one of the and, best uh, scenes in courtroom drama. Yeah, yeah. It reminds well, me of Jack Nicholson, A Few Good Men, when you think he's this nut and horrible person, and then he gives this great speech about, <laughs> you guys are all asleep Why I'm down there, and you, you know what I mean, you need right. me, because right. I'm right on the edge of the Cold War nuclear front down there in Guantanamo. And it's a brilliant speech. Well, Victor, we've... Uh, I can't say we've gone over because this is you've been terrific, and the more you, the merrier. So, uh, but 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 we we are out of time. Other than we'll perform our typical duties here of gratitude for our listeners, the numbers on this pod for people listening. This podcast continue to grow. Actually, the number of podcasts continue to grow. Victor had a, a really great um, interview with Scott Atlas last week. You'll find it at. Again, justthenews.com or victorhanson.com or whatever platform you listen to, find that. I listened this morning, a new uh, discussion you had with your old colleague from the classicist, your friend, my friend Troy Senek about Grover Cleveland. Really, really, really excellent listen. Uh, So five, four times a week, twice with me, twice with the great Sammy Wink, and now an extra one. It's uh, Victor Victor Monday through Friday. so what else? Uh, oh, we've got some great a, a comment or two I'd like to read from folks who have um, left uh, reviews, zero to five stars on uh, Apple Podcasts. Still, again, many, 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 many people, vast majority, 99% are leaving five-star reviews. Thanks so much for that. Uh, here's two uh, two people who left comments uh, at, at Apple I'd like to I'd like to read these. Uh, one is from Safe Again, and who says, courageous interview with much appreciation for the interview with Dr. Atlas that will help anyone involved with research, which is systematically being politically corrupted. I had followed his work and was appalled at what was happening to the to the ability to critically think wonderful political timeline descriptions viewed through history Always learn new ideas. Check every day to hear his new thoughts. This is from Safe Again. Thank you, Safe Again. And then also from Cool as Shiz uh, writes, titled his comments, uh, his or her, uh, so thankful for a voice of reason. Mr. Hansen, 
Always tune in to hear your crystal clear observations on the awful state of politics and society as a whole when you are on Fox. So I was delighted to find out you had a podcast where I can listen to you for a good hour straight without interruption. You are a breath of fresh air that is sorely needed. And I am amongst an ever-growing number that is immensely appreciative for it. Keep on doing what you do, sir. Cool as shiz. Thanks, cool as shiz, for that. Thank you, Victor, for all your wisdom you shared today. Great uh, to hear all these uh, thoughts. And uh, thank you, folks, for listening. We will be back. Excuse me there. We will be back soon with another episode of The Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thanks. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.